TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. A poison like no other, Matt Simon. How microplastics corrupted our planet and our bodies. As much as 74 tons of microplastics fell from the air and settled on rooftops, gardens and other surfaces in Auckland, New Zealand in 2020. This baffling observation is made by a study published on December 12, 2022 in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal. Microplastics are formed during the making of plastic products and the breaking down of large plastics due to weathering and aging. According to the study, we may inhale substantial quantities of microplastics with every breath and these plastics will eventually flow into our blood and accumulate in our organs. Scientists have been discussing the possibility that microplastic mists and clouds exist in the atmosphere, but this is the first study to quantify the magnitude of the problem. On average, 4,885 airborne plastic particles had accumulated in one square meter in one day, they found. These tiny pieces of plastic, less than 5 millimeters in length, have already invaded our food chains and have been found even in newborn babies. The smaller the particles, the more harmful it is to human health. Microplastics are making the news. This clip was broadcast on December 15, 2022. The research was published in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal. Here now are excerpts from Plastic Talks, hosted by Erica Serino, the communications manager of the Plastic Pollution Coalition. Hello and welcome to Plastic Talks. I'm Erica Serino, communications manager for Plastic Pollution Coalition, and today I'm speaking with Matt Simon. He's a science journalist for Wired Magazine and an author of several great books, the latest of which, A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies, recently launched. Welcome, Matt. And thank you for having me. Matt, you were a recent guest on our October 27, 2022 webinar, which was also the date of your new book launch, focusing on the health impacts and environmental impacts of microplastics. And we had so many questions during the webinar, and there was so much great information that we weren't able to answer all of them. So we thought it would be a good idea to have another conversation and answer as many of them as we can. So are you ready? Let's just dive into this. I'm ready. <laughs> um, Let's do it. There are microplastics all around us, um, as you've hinted at, you know, and obviously cleanups are trying to address that. But recently we came across an article in The Guardian that kind of hinted that microplastics may be contributing to the risk of dementia and Parkinson's disease. Um, and I know in my own research, I've seen and written about um, plastics uh, entering the brains of fish and maybe changing fish behavior. Um, are there any studies that you're aware of um, or studies in progress that document the um, mental or biological health effects of plastic on the brain? Yeah, that's actually very interesting that you mentioned that study on fishes. I think I think I probably cited also in, in my book that we do have very good evidence from not just fish models, but mammal models. So mice and rats in the lab that if you feed them or inject them with nanoplastics in particular, and, and may as well just define it here, microplastics are a bit smaller than five millimeters. 
nanoplastics are generally defined as as bits that are smaller than a micrometer or a millionth of a, a meter. Once you get down to that nano size, and what we're seeing in these these mammal models in the lab is that these things readily move through the body. They they pass through the gut and into other tissues. Wow. Yeah. They enter the bloodstream, um, and once they're in the bloodstream, they're they're going to the brain. And if they are small enough to pass the blood brain barrier, then they are getting into those tissues where we do not want them. Um, but I talked to a, a couple of scientists in the book that that are um, saying it's almost a surety that we are going to find nanoplastics in the brain and uh we then have to figure out all right well the question isn't are the microplastics and nanoplastics in our body but at what point does too much plastic become too much plastic and yeah a lot of these chemicals and plastics have been linked to any number of human health problems um, beyond the the uh, neurological problems that you mentioned um hormone problems and then, you know, as we're going forward, it, it then becomes an issue of disentangling the contribution of microplastics and nanoplastics to these potential neurological problems from any number of other chemicals that we're exposed to in the environment, just because we have let the chemicals industry introduce all of these things without really any oversight, any good testing right. on what they're going to do to the human brain. Or, you know, when you think about microplastics and nanoplastics infiltrating every corner of the environment and every ecosystem, what they're doing to the brains of fishes or every other organism on this planet. But we know for, for a fact that these particles get into fish brains, they get into mammal brains, they're probably in our brains. When does it become too much plastic? Wow, yeah. I mean, what is known so far about how much of this our bodies can handle? So I think what's interesting here about the dosing is that when scientists bring an organism into lab, uh, usually that they're working on fishes with microplastics, they are typically dosing them with much higher concentrations than what you would find in the environment. And that's to elicit a response. That, that's to see if, if there is eventually a response at these very high concentrations. But there have been studies recently that are looking at environmentally relevant concentrations, which are concentrations that you would find out in the environment already as microplastics have flown uh out there in in just astonishing numbers it that's those concentrations are going up exponentially as the production of plastic also increases exponentially so in these current concentrations that we have in the environment we have demonstrated harm to certain sea creatures. So um, lobsters, they were exposed to, baby lobsters were exposed to these environmentally relevant concentrations and found adverse effects. Um, same with copepods, which are little crustaceans um, that are, are part of the planktonic community. Uh, so we have demonstrated harm at very high concentrations, which is probably reasonable, but now these new studies are showing, wait a second, we have in current concentrations in the environment demonstrated harm to these organisms. I will also mention that in, in freshwater systems as well, there was a really good study that came out a couple of years ago where scientists at the University of Washington went sleuthing for a chemical that they thought to be killing salmon in rivers there after rains. And they, they actually tracked this down to tire particles. Tires are made out of synthetic rubber, which is a, a wow. plastic, it's a polymer. They found a specific chemical called 6PPD in tire particles that in current concentrations, currently right now are killing salmon in these rivers on mass and now we have to think about 
well, my God, that's one chemical in plastics that could be affecting any number of other fishes around the world that we don't know about. And there are at least 10,500 other chemicals used in plastics, and a quarter of which are, are, are considered to be of concern among scientists for, for organisms. That's going to be the interesting thing going forward is figuring out what is currently suffering in the environment from current concentrations of microplastics and what will be suffering in five or 10 years, again, as these concentrations uh, just keep skyrocketing. That is, I think, the real urgency here is that we have demonstrated harm and it's only going to get worse from here as these organisms really become overburdened by these particles that are piling up in the environment. Wow. Yeah, no, it's clear that um, how could we help people visualize the extent of this threat, um, especially given that the particles can be nearly invisible and that the impacts are so cumulative? I, I think the best number to put on that, and I think the most shocking number, is that when we're looking at just the atmosphere, so um, scientists recently have been finding more and more that the particles have absolutely saturated the atmosphere. And in the book, I, I talk about going and visiting one of these atmospheric scientists in, in Washington, and we hike up to the top of a mountain and, and find one of her devices that captures what's falling out of the atmosphere. And, and she's catching all kinds of microplastics in addition to natural bits of dust. But so she, she took those calculations and some of these devices placed throughout the Western United States and calculated that in, in just Western protected areas, and these account for about 6% of the total land area in the United States, the equivalent of 300 million water bottles fall out of the sky as microplastics each year. So then scaling uh -huh. that up, again, only 6% of the total land area, that means billions of plastic bottles are falling on our heads each year invisibly because microplastics get down to the scale that we can't see them. Um, and then that is not considering nanoplastics. And there are only a couple of studies that have looked at this in the atmosphere so far, but one of them was in the very remote Alps. And at the top of a mountain, these researchers did the same kind of technique and, and gathered up nanoplastics instead of microplastics and found that if you were to stand on the top of this mountain in an hour, billions of these nanoplastics would fall on your shoulders. That is the scale of this problem. And that is to say nothing of how saturated the oceans have become. But I think the right. atmosphere really, really drives this point home that everything is connected. So scientists are also finding that the oceans, which have been receiving microplastics for decades now through, through wastewater, um, are now actually burping a lot of those microplastics back onto sea. So they, they come up to the surface of the ocean in bubbles, and when those bubbles burst, they fling microplastics and nanoplastics into the air that then blow back onto land. So this, uh, I think, interesting cycle, interesting is not the right word, maybe horrifying is the right word, but <laughs> cycle yeah. of microplastics in the environment is um, is truly astonishing that we have movement of these particles between these different domains between the ocean, the land, and and the air, they're they're moving quite readily. And in the atmosphere, they're blowing thousands of miles. And they're falling onto what we would used to think would be pristine environments. They're finding 
tire particles on Arctic sea ice, um, obviously very far away from any vehicle. How'd that get there? Wow. It is yeah. through atmospheric deposition. And that is, um, that's the truly scary thing here is that there is no place on the planet that is untouched. Maybe like, I don't know, it would have a harder time getting to the South Pole, um, even though microplastics are lapping at the, at the shores of the uh, Antarctic, uh, because there's just in such stunning numbers in, in the ocean, that that is truly the scale of the problem. And then just, you know, other numbers thinking about throwing out, you know, 4 trillion cigarettes a year into the environment, those break into tens of thousands of microfibers each, um, just that contribution is stunning. Uh, millions of microfibers coming out of a wastewater treatment facility each year. Uh, what is not sent out from a, a wastewater treatment facility in the water that flows to the ocean is sequestered in something called sludge, which is human waste that's spread on fields as fertilizer. One calculation figured that Europe alone is spreading a billion pounds of microplastics onto their fields by way of sludge each year. This this is the, the scale that we're dealing with, and this is the emergency. Well, I quote a scientist in the book when we're talking about the ocean ecosystems, and he's saying that we're, in the coming decades, I think we're going to see quite widespread ecological problems just because you're knocking out these creatures in the plectonic community, uh, like copepods that are that are dining on these things. That's the base of the food web. Um, what then ripple effects go up that food web? And that's, uh, that's I think, the real urgency is that we we got to stop this before it truly gets even more out of hand. Completely. Um, and to that end, um, with the plastic all around us, I know, I'm aware that, um, you know, we ingest microplastic and you read a lot about uh, microplastics in drinking water, but is there any evidence that we absorb plastic plastic and plastic chemicals through our skin? Very good question. And there is speculation that yes, um, this is, I mean, this is the daunting thing, right? So we know that we're inhaling it. Uh, one scientist I talked to in the book reckons that we inhale 7,000 particles a day. Uh, we're eating and drinking, obviously, a lot of them. Uh, just by way of, of stool samples, we can reckon that uh, a human probably uh, at least excretes a million particles a year. And that is not to say all the other ones that we're probably absorbing through our food right. and through our guts, just because they're so small. But these things on get on down on the nanoscale. And there is probably going to be the case that, that some of them are absorbed directly through the skin, that, that they're just down to that size where that is entirely possible. And then that makes me think of uh, microbeads. So when when the United right. States banned microbeads, they banned it in wash-off products like like facial scrubs, uh, and it didn't touch other uses in cosmetics. So facial cosmetics, they go on smoothly a lot of times because they're loaded with microbeads. They act almost like ball bearings to kind of smooth over the skin. Are we then using that as, as a, another avenue for these microplastics and nanoplastics to get into our our bodies. Um, but I, I think in the end, the biggest issue is going to be what we're inhaling, just because you spend all day indoors, which is a, right. a, a thoroughly contaminated environment. Again, perhaps 7,000 fibers breathed in a day. Um, that's going to be, I think, much more than what we're, we're eating and drinking and absorbing through our skin. So fascinating, but also very scary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not great news. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
from what we know, there are different types of microplastic particles in the sense that they come in different shapes and sizes to some extent. But based on your research, do microfibers and more fragmentary types of microplastic have similar or different effects on living organisms? Very good question. That um, that gets particularly interesting with, I think, plankton. So we're talking about copepods and, and other small crustaceans that make right. up this community of, of tiny critters that are are eating uh, typically phytoplankton, which are these little algae that, that make up the base of the food web. Uh, these creatures are, are the perfect size to be ingesting microplasm. So it, as microplastics were defined in, in 2004, the scientists were actually thinking, okay, well, we know that larger creatures like sea turtles are choking on macroplastic, these bottles and, and bags and that sort of thing. Um, but what about smaller creatures? What could they potentially be ingesting? And they, and they came down to, to five millimeters as a definition, um, just based on you know what these, what these little things could be eating and potentially choking on. And there is a good video that you can find um, from a, a plankton researcher on Twitter who's, who just points a camera at these plankton and shows them ingesting microfibers and choking on them. These things are perfectly shaped to get stuck in a digestive system. And um, that's, I think, the the main concern among oceanographers with with ingestion is that these these animals are filling up their stomachs with stuff that is obviously not digestible and decreasing their appetite for actual food this is known as food dilution uh, it could also be the case that these plastics are leaching out their chemicals in their stomach um, right. while while they're choking on that could that could have adverse effects as well but it, very immediately if, if you cannot eat because your stomach is full of plastic you're going to die. Uh, and actually, I'll just say that one of the earliest documentations of microplastics in the environment in the early 1970s was a researcher who was finding fish with, with nurdles, these little pellets that are melted down into bottles mm -hmm. and bags to make plastic products. He was finding these small fish with these things that he say were like bowling balls in their stomachs we then have to consider about all the other tiny critters on land. So what insects are eating these these microplastics and nanoplastics that they're foraging in the environment? Um, there was, a, I think, a, a really interesting study that actually looked at the ways that animals, I, a lot of insects obviously turn into, from caterpillars into uh, adult butterflies or mosquito larvae into adult mosquito. And uh, these were actually shown, the, the, if you feed them microplastics, they actually go along for the ride as these animals transform into adults as wow. their bodies rearranged. Um, so they carry the microplastics along with them. Uh, I won't keep rambling, but I, I would just like add one more that I think is actually important is things like earthworms have been documented to eat microplastics that again, we are spreading in large numbers on our soils because they're is so much of the stuff in sludge and that decreases their growth rate and leads to mortality. These are organisms that we rely on to keep our soils healthy. And so from going from that larger like ecosystem wide scale to more of um, what people might be able to do in their day to day, I remember from the webinar that um, the Allens gave a recommendation not to freeze food in plastic containers. So looking at our own diets and minimizing microplastics, does freezing 
actually result in microplastic kind of breaking off and contaminating food or is it more putting hot food in the plastic container or is it both of these things it is both of these things unfortunately so when we consider polymers the the three main things that are breaking them down are, are temperature pressure and uv light so if you consider a, a plastic bag that's floating on the ocean it's being bombarded with uv radiation that breaks it apart into these smaller pieces um, obviously heat does the same thing but also freezing so like if that bag wanders into the arctic it's going to freeze and thaw and that's going to break it apart so the same thing is, is happening in our freezers it will break into smaller bits um, especially when you are heating things in plastic and that is never ever recommended I think Steve said something along the lines of you know if you have a paper cup and it's able to hold hot water it is lined with plastic there's no there's right. no way that a, a purely paper cup is going to be able to withstand hot coffee so if that's lined with plastic you are pouring hot liquid in there Yikes. and that is just demolishing <laughs> yeah. it's demolishing the the plastic and there have been studies that have quantified this that if you prepare hot liquid in a coffee cup it's it's millions of these these particles coming coming off into a, a cup of coffee the scarier study was done on plastic bottles for infants that, that these researchers prepared infant formula with, with warm water in these plastics and again the perfect environment for that plastic to break down and and quantified that babies could be drinking millions of these particles a day uh, in their wow. their formula and we have almost zero idea what that means for infant health uh, again when we're considering any plastic in the body none of it is good it's just a matter of of how much is going to be too much so right. do not prepare hot foods in plastics do not freeze plastics if you can avoid it uh, really it comes down to just doing everything that we can to remove plastics from as many aspects of our lives as possible and then you want to worry so much about heating and, and and freezing these things but given that we don't have a choice as consumers like if if a lot of people are living in food deserts in particular they might only have access to packaged food and, and not fresh food they're exposed to more plastics that way in the end it's going to be a just a fundamental renegotiation of our relationship with plastic that's going to require a huge pushback against these companies that have flooded the market with plastics and none of us asked for that right like i uh, none mm. of us as consumers like i would um love for more of my food to be encased in this material thank you very much no um it, it's gonna require a massive change on the part of the industry and it's gonna require massive activism on that part um so i'll move on to the last question here thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge with us i know sure, that sure. Uh, really excited to know more um but a lot of the questions we received focused on how we might actually best minimize the creation of microplastics. Uh, I come back to, to microfibers in clothing as this huge source of microplastics in the home. So one study quantified it and found that we might, as an individual, produce a billion fibers a year from our clothing um, just by walking around and, and abrading that, that, wow. that material. So what the industry is starting the fashion industry is starting to look at is ways to produce fabrics that don't 
shed as much. That's both as we wash that clothing in the washing machine and it, it just kind of peels off these little fibers, but also just walking around. So in the end, we need clothes that are very, very tough, which is antithetical to the huge rise of the fast fashion industry. The fast fashion industry is not going to want to hear that their business model is fundamentally corrupt. It's fundamentally awful. It, it produces, first of all, way too much clothing that's then wasted. Um, it takes a lot of resources and energy to make that clothing. That is, again, I guess, I think actually with fast fashion, it's probably closer to 100% plastic now, whereas uh, just generally two thirds of clothing is is now made out of plastic. But fast fashion has certainly leaned into the, the synthetic fibers. We should be doing our best to buy the highest quality clothes and wear them as long as possible. If we are instead right. buying cheap clothes that fall apart in the washing machine after six months, well, where do you think that that material has gone? It has flushed out to see it now as microplastics um, that are yeah. getting into any number of creatures. So uh, we need better quality clothing, which is not what the fashion industry is going to want to hear because the whole industry is built on planned obsolescence. They invented planned obsolescence back mid-century uh, that has now spread like a plague into any number of other industries. Uh, we have to buy new clothes every year because they're out of fashion, which is a, a truly absurd idea. Um, right. We yeah. need better clothing. We need research into ways that we can put together clothes that don't shed as many microfibers because people need to wear clothing, right? Right. So go for the quality, not the quantity. <laughs> quality, not quantity. And it's just yeah. like, and that's just, it just keeps coming back to just use less plastic. At the end of the day, that's the right. only, that's the only yeah. thing that we can do that is, that is across the board impactful. There are lots of smaller things that we can do as individuals that for sure add up into something quite meaningful, but there is no replacement for just using less plastic. If you have less plastic around you in the home, as Steve says, that's less stuff that is breaking apart over time into right. microplastics that then get into our bodies. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for keeping us informed and well-educated on the subject. Um, we really enjoyed your webinar as well as your book. And I don't know if you have Great, any... Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I mean, any last comments for our listeners? I just want to point out how directly linked the, the microplastic crisis and the climate crisis are. So plastics are our fossil fuels. Uh, and as the fossil fuel industry sees a writing on the wall that we're going to decarbonize and stop burning these fossil fuels, they want to switch to more plastics. That's Right. That's the urgency is that the exponential rise in the production of plastic is going to keep being exponential because this is a, a source of revenue for them. Um, planetary destruction is is their business. Um, and we need, at the end of the day, to elect politicians that, that see these crises as, as one and the same, that we, we can't fix, fix the plastic pollution problem without fixing climate change and, and vice versa. These are intimately linked. We can't look at them in silos. Um, so it is uh, about fighting the fossil fuel industry at large and the petrochemical companies that are that are making these plastics. Um, this is a unified fight that we as a, a species need to come together on um, to face down these sociopathic corporations um, that have destroyed this planet in the pursuit of profit. That was Matt Simon. 
science writer for Wired magazine and author of A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. You heard excerpts from Plastic Talks, hosted by Erica Serino, the communications manager of the Plastic Pollution Coalition. Visit Matt Simon's website at mattsimon.net or look at the full video of this conversation on YouTube under the title A Poison Like No Other. It is listed on the channel of the Plastic Pollution Coalition.net. That's one word, Plastic Pollution Coalition.net. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>